This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we feature U.S. ski team physician Dr. Larry Gall. We caught up with Gall back on January 29th while he was in Utah for World Juniors. Gall has a long history working with the U.S. ski team's cross-country athletes, and on the international side of things, Gall serves on the International Ski Federation's, or FIS's, medical committee. It was part of his FIS duties that brought him to the 2017 World Juniors competition at Soldier Hollow outside Midway, Utah. There he served as the FIS medical supervisor during the competition. For starters, can I just get you to introduce yourself? What do you do if you're not working with the U.S. ski team? And then we'll kind of get into your ski-specific related part of your occupation. Uh, Sure. Well, my my name is Larry Gall, and I am a cardiologist and internist. And for the last 24 years or so, I was in Vail, Colorado. Uh, And then in the last two weeks, I've actually moved to the Indian Health Service in Chinle, Arizona, uh, on the Navajo Nation uh, reservation there. Well, I do both internal medicine and and cardiology predominantly. I did a lot of critical care over the years uh, as well, was the medical director of the ICU. And that's all my day job. And how old are you? I'm 62. It sounds like you have a long relationship with both the U.S. ski team. And I think you're also affiliated with FIS as well in terms of one of their medical committees. So can you talk about how you're involved with the international side of cross-country sport? Uh, sure. Probably it's better to, to start with just a description of what I do with the U.S. ski team because sure. that's included within that. Um, I first began working with the U.S. team, I think, in 2000, uh, I believe, and took a couple of trips. And then uh, my predecessor on the Nordic team left – after the Salt Lake Olympics. Uh, so I sort of took over from that point as the head doc for the Nordic team, which was sort of a funny designation because head doc meant only doc in those days. And then it's evolved, and we have quite a few physicians now who help us. So I function as the head Nordic physician. I've also, uh, I function as the course director for a course that I co-founded with some other people entitled the MESS course, which is the Medical Emergencies in Skiing and Snowboarding. And that was because of some incidents that we had on the U.S. ski team. And my original background, I was a paramedic, so I'm oriented to emergency types of situations uh, and so forth. Just to flesh out, too, when you describe yourself as the physician, and it sounds like the staff of physicians is far broader than it may have been a decade ago or 15 years ago. And I'm also, maybe you can clarify, but am I correct to assume that each athlete also has a personal physician that then you might coordinate with to just debrief about their general health? Uh, they are free to have a personal physician, absolutely. Uh, I am mostly a consultant, except when we're at an event, they will often come to me. But uh, over the years, I've now been doing this, I think, 17 or 18 seasons. I've come to be on the other end of the telephone for a lot of the athletes. I know them very well. Uh, they may call me from wherever they all in the world are in the world. So it just depends. Uh, when it comes to the trauma types of things, oftentimes an athlete will have, for example, dealt with an orthopedic surgeon in New Hampshire. 
and they get injured and they'll go back to that, that orthopedic surgeon. We, we certainly cannot and would not ever, like with any other patient, try and tell them who they should see. Uh, they're, they're perfectly free to do that. The athletes often are young enough that they don't really have a personal physician established yet. It's not like a 60-year-old who might have been going to the same doctor for 20 years. You know, these kids are, are, aren't even 20, some of them, yet. So, and they're, they're healthy. They're totally healthy otherwise. So it's a mixed bag. I know that the medical field becomes increasingly complex as each year goes by, and the responsibilities are, as I can imagine, fairly complex as well. It's not simply like, here's their blood pressure, their heart rate, uh, lungs sound good. There's also this whole piece of navigating rules and rules about you know banned substances. And there was this to-do about Teresa Yohog, who I'm, you're probably familiar with, and I don't know if you know all the details about her case, but um, she was flagged for a doping violation, and there seemed to be a lot of miscommunication between her doctor and her in terms of navigating the banned substances list. In turn, I did a podcast with Liz Steven, and I was just asking her, so how do you guys go about you know, just figuring out again what you should and shouldn't take just in terms of general wellness, assuming everything is all above board. And on the other piece of that is where do you look for assistance with uh, navigating the banned substances list? Liz had mentioned there's a website they go on to that they can go on and type in a substance and it'll immediately give them updates on whether or not it's legal or not. What type of training do you have to get to stay abreast of, say, the banned substances list that WADA and USADA put out or publish? And what type of re-education does that take you know, from month to month or year to year? Well, quite honestly, it doesn't take that much re-education. What it takes is an awareness that you have no idea what's going on in, in that world. And uh, as long as you remember that and remember the website's then you can stay in safe territory fairly easily. Uh, you just have to know how to go to the WADA website. Uh, I personally download the WADA list every year on January 1 because that's when it becomes effective. And I carry that with me in hard, either a hard copy, well, usually a hard copy and on my computer. And then, as you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the athletes and we can go to the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee's site. Uh, it's called Global DRO. And that's a very good site for looking up specific substances. Then the U.S. Olympic Committee has an education uh, website, and then there's other uh, organizations that are coming out with websites that can help educate you on the procedures. Probably the hardest thing, and we do some of this at my course that I run for, for U.S. team doctors, the hardest thing is what are the mechanics when you go to anti-doping with an athlete? What, are, what is the physician's role? What do you watch for? And we certainly never get any of that in medical school. So at the suggestion of one of our students a couple of years ago, uh, I now bring uh, a lady. Actually, she was just here in Park City uh, till yesterday. Uh, she's, she's a DCO or doping control officer, and she works for an independent company who does anti-doping specimen collection and so forth for us. And she comes and demonstrates how the procedures are done at the mess course. 
so that you can see it because a lot of people, no physician gets any part of it in their regular medical training. And it's not till you go to the event. So you sort of have to learn on the job um, in terms of the mechanics of it anyway, which is the most important part from our standpoint. Okay. And so when you talk about the word mechanics and what I start thinking of is, you know, there's the physical mechanics of obviously giving a urine sample but beyond that there are when you say mechanics do you think are you alluding to how is the urine sample or the test sealed how is it labeled and who has proximity to the athlete things like that uh, that's part of it yeah there's a lot that and sometimes they they are taking blood as well okay so for example i've been there when the blood specimen was obtained incorrectly. I've, I've seen that multiple times. Uh, so you have to know how to draw blood. Well, we, as physicians, we send the person to the lab and the lab tech does it. But when you're there, you know, we don't really know what the techniques are. So I had to learn how do you know that the specimens collected properly? And then there's all the paperwork issues. And especially if you're at a big event or it's an athlete who hasn't been through this process many times, they're not sure what to look for. So I've been at world championships where the forms were filled out incorrectly, for example. Uh, nothing was done intentionally wrong. It's just someone, a DCO, missed something. And, you know, that can be the end of a, an athlete's career. So we watch over them because we're the ones who have to keep a cool head. They're caught up in the stars. You know, if they just won an event or if they're brand new to this, they don't know what they're looking for. And, and I've seen athletes miss things even though they've done this hundreds of times, hundreds uh, but they just won a big event, you know, world championship or something, and, and they, they're not exactly thinking about whether the numbers are all lined up in a row and whether the signatures are in the right places and so forth. So they're so stringent that if the paperwork is somehow, you know, it's like writing your social security number in the proper place on a 1099 or and I'm imagining it's a more complex document, but there's some sort of violation involved with mistakenly filling out paperwork, it sounds like. It's not that it's a, a violation. It's that if, let's say, a, an athlete came back and, and the A sample was tested positive or something, and they were and this was proceeding through the uh, adjudication process, if they have to vet all that paperwork and make sure everything was done properly. So our job is to make sure the paperwork, if an issue comes up, is filled in. Otherwise, two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, all of a sudden, you know, it's like, well, was that filled out? I don't know. You want to not make those mistakes, especially at the big events or, you know, for the athletes. Is In my knowledge, the U.S. ski team has athletes that they are first and foremost responsible for vetting the ingredients on a particular medication or something that may not even be uh, prescribed. You know, you can buy it over the counter. Um but that said, you know, how often does someone reach out to you to help figure out like, hey, is there a gray area here? You know, I don't want to get dinged for, you know, a positive test and I'm just unsure. I mean, how often is that part of your job? For the U.S. team, it's, it's really evolving over the years. The athletes have, and the coaches have gotten much better at checking things on their own. I would say that in the last year Probably half a dozen times I've been asked about a specific situation. 
it used to be much more frequent than that because it wasn't in the athlete's wheelhouse yet to be looking themselves. I've had, you know, in, in early years, I had athletes just hand me things they bought in drugstores or grocery stores in foreign countries in towns I couldn't pronounce, uh, let alone read what was on the label. Luckily, on the American side of things, people have always been very good about bringing things uh, to me that they purchase or that they want to take uh, when I've been with them. Uh, nowadays, they're, they're checking it pretty much on their own. But, for example, you brought up the, the case of uh, Teresa Yohag. I, I do not know all the details, and I'm sure that's tied up in WADA and perhaps even eventually go to court of arbitration and sports CAS. But um, you, you can be in one country and something looks exactly the same as it does in another country, and you can miss something. And if you don't read the languages, I've called from overseas to pharmacists in the United States that I work with to look things up and try and figure out what was in a a particular preparation. We know that system better than the athletes do, generally speaking, how to get more help, but it's it's challenging. So one of the things that I've heard was that sometimes the the doping control process post-race still is not incredibly smooth. There's still lots of bumps, perhaps some inefficiencies, uh, athletes waiting after a race several hours in a spot where there's maybe not appropriate warm down equipment like a stationary bicycle uh, or in a room that maybe is too cold. Although we'd like to think on the outside that everything's all streamlined and modernized. Is it still a work in progress when we think of standardization of that doping control procedure post-race? I'm not sure that work in progress is the right terminology, but rather you have to work within the constraints of the local facilities. And those are limited by money and space and buildings and infrastructure and so forth. And so there are times certainly where it's not ideal. When you go to bigger events like here at Soldier Hollow or some of the events that have been going on for many years and there's been Olympics there, then there's good infrastructure. Others, some, sometimes you're in a very small town somewhere and, and they're making do with the buildings and the rooms that they've got available. Uh, so it's a more variable, I would say. The effort is always consistently high to do a good job. Uh, I, I think in 17 years I've been to maybe I might have seen once when the people weren't really putting the effort in. But that's, that's just incredibly rare. Uh, but it's not to say that it's always warm and fuzzy by any means. It's not. As the U.S. representative to an international body, do physicians from other countries that represent, you know, the traditional skiing powers and even smaller non-quote Nordic countries, do you folks collectively receive training about how to best uh, either treat athletes and then help them or shepherd them through the the being compliant with WADA code? Uh, not really. I wouldn't say we, we receive training. Um, the, the FIS Medical Committee is made up of one physician from each of the countries that are in FIS. And until somewhere around 10 years ago, anti-doping was under our purview, and so we were much more involved in it. it it correctly has been taken away from us because many of us are team physicians. So you shouldn't have a team physician 
discussing anti-doping policy because there would always be a risk of, of a conflict of interest, for example. Uh, however, we do get uh, – every year we get updates from the FIS anti-doping people, one of whom um, is Sarah Fusik, and uh, she's, she does that administratively for the FIS for anti-doping, and she often is updating us. And then the other would be Dr. Rasmus Damsgaard in, from Copenhagen, uh, and Rez – is an anti-doping expert, and so they come and give us presentations, and Raz is actually on our committee as well. Uh, so we get to hear from them what's going on in the world, but it's not formal training per se on how to do it because it's not really our role. We're there primarily as physicians. So if I can have you just describe what you're doing in Utah right now and what event you're working at and in what capacity. Uh, sure. I am here as the FIS medical supervisor, which means I'm not part of the U.S. team right now. I liken it to being a U.N. observer somewhere. We are impartial. And the way this comes about is that for all world championships and Olympics, the FIS medical committee sends someone to be the so-called supervisor. And really what that means is that I go around and kick the tires and make sure they've got the procedures in place for the event from a medical standpoint that we have put in as requirements. So these are the uh, junior world ski championships for Nordic skiing. And because I'm a U.S.-based doctor, I drew this assignment. I've done it for the regular world championships uh, a few years ago in the Czech Republic. But we'll have somebody at each of the world championships, at each discipline in, in the snow sports this, this winter. Okay, and so I'm assuming that under your kind of oversight, you're kicking the tires on things like course safety, you know, at points along the course. Is it, be it first aid or proper evacuation gear, you know, in case someone has a, a spinal injury, um, all the way to overseeing or kicking the tires, so to speak, on post-race doping control? Yeah, not so much on doping control, although I do maintain a general awareness of it uh, and just walk through the process to make sure that it's it meets the basics. But that's about it. Again, because we're not so much involved in anti-doping anymore. So there was uh, a, a German company here doing out-of-competition testing. They left this morning and yesterday, and today USADA came in from Colorado Springs, and their representatives are here now, uh, making sure that's the case. Okay. And I don't go out and inspect the whole course. That's really the TD's jobs and, and the other course officials. Uh, but I do go around, and I checked in at medical this morning, found out where all their medical stations were, what the training of the medical people is. Uh, I went out and looked at the equipment. We found that some equipment was missing, for example, so I helped the ski patroller uh, move the equipment to where we could use it if needed. And that sort of thing. What would you tell younger athletes who are listening um, what to look out for and whom they might seek out in terms of advice just to stay healthy and also competitive? I think the biggest thing that I've seen over the years is uh, young athletes being pushed too hard. Now, this should remain fun. It should be an absolutely fun sport to do. And if uh, athletes get pushed too hard by coaches or by um, parents or their peers, then they can just get over fatigued and burn out too early. 
this this is a sport that takes a long time to develop and to do well and you just have to be patient and today for example i was mentioning earlier there was an accident and the athlete who went down was really a top hope for the united states and i watched that athlete and their recovery was wonderful it was you know is a female athlete and she maintained great spirits and just got up and well that's racing and that's what we want to see and that keeps you healthy if you go home and stew over it and get angry or don't rest or you know do two a day workouts the entire season and never get adequate rest uh, then you burn out and you're done so I encourage the young uh, kids to to just take it slow and their parents especially just take it slow and let them develop uh, and make sure they rest and eat good foods. Stay away from Burger Kings. Are there resources that you recommend to people, like be it books or websites, that one could gain some knowledge from? Yeah, to a degree, it's hard. Uh, and that's why I've always kept my phone on. I've talked to parents. I've talked to, in fact, just today, I met the parents of an athlete that I was working with this summer. I've, I still haven't met the athlete herself. She's here, but I just haven't met her. Um, and, you know, through the ranks, through the networking that goes on, that athlete got my name, and I talked to her on the phone several times over the summer. And that goes on a lot, but there's not much in the way of formal stuff, except for the International Olympic Committee runs a conference every two years uh, that is in Monaco. In fact, it'll be in, I think it's in March or April this year, I can't remember, uh, in Monaco. But that requires, of course, a big time and financial commitment to go to these things. In the, at the lower levels, and before you know if you want to do it, the best thing to do is just get involved with the local teams and then start reading. Like British Journal of Sports Medicine, for example, has a lot of articles that are relevant to our sports and some other sports. And there are medical journals out there, but the best thing to do is to call someone who's been involved in, in a sport for a long time because they'll be networked. U.S. ski team people will always take phone calls and they'll, they've got a huge network around the country and around the world of people who are expert in various subjects and can connect parents and coaches and doctors and, and so forth. Um, anything else that you'd add? Any insight, any sort of anecdote uh, before we sign off? No, I would just like if there's physicians that are are reading or listening to this, like the the event physician today who is out there. I told him I was doing this, and and he's like, "Oh, I didn't even know things like that might be in Faster Skier or on the web." So, uh, you know, I encourage docs to get involved at at local levels and start figuring out if this is what they like to do from a medical standpoint, and then just be as supportive and and. Um, I don't know what the right word is, but I tell people that your job is to just be there. If the phone rings, you answer it, but don't go pushing the phone into anybody's hands. You're just there in case. And, you know, this is all about the athletes and the spectators and, and the sport itself, not about the doctors. So try and get other physicians involved because we need, I think right now we have 260 physicians who volunteer, and this is all volunteer for all of us. Uh, we volunteer our time and, and we do it at our expense. But we, need, we always need more people coming into the pipeline and getting involved. And some of those people will take things to new levels and do a better job than we're doing now. So that's the good thing. Thanks to your time, Larry. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation.